Syria was a, a way to draw a line against what the Russians saw as this incessant Western encroachment. Of course, we see the color revolutions and in, in the Arab Spring and all these other political phenomena as the people in these countries overthrowing corrupt authoritarian regimes. Right? The Russians don't see it that way. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I am Tom Rehnquist, and today we have with us Professor Robert Hamilton from the U.S. Army War College. Professor Hamilton is also a Black Sea Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and today we are discussing an FPRI report on Syria and Russia's military involvement in the area. We discuss a number of uh, topics in Syria and how the conflict looks today, in addition to a little Nagorno-Karabakh content, because that of course, is on everyone's mind right now. So a lot we cover here, and uh, Michelle is laughing at me, but it's great. So I hope you enjoy. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Hamilton, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yes, yeah, so this is funny. We did a uh, show in Libya a few weeks ago. So this is, I guess, a series of international quagmires where the U.S. failed to make a big impact. So I'm glad you'll be able to join that conversation. Right. And uh, since you mentioned that, you know, there's there's one brewing right now, as I'm sure you know, in the South Caucasus and the Gonokarabakh. Of course, the only way that conflict stops escalating is with great power intervention. This is one area where I actually think the Russian Federation and the United States have interests in common. Our interests converge. And if we were a little more active, we could probably make a difference. But we'll have to see what happens there. I know you spent some time in Georgia, so maybe we can come back to that. You are here to speak about Syria, and I was introduced to you through FBRI's uh, book webinar that happened a few weeks ago. So I would love to just hear about the process of putting that book together and sort of what was FBRI's incitement to put that together. Sure. So we sat down, a group of us, uh, some some of the sort of core staff at FBRI and, and some of the, the scholars, the fellows sat down, I believe it was last October, and just sort of threw around the idea that... Uh, this September would be the five-year anniversary of Russia's intervention in Syria, and it would be nice if we could put together an edited volume corresponding to that five-year anniversary, looking at the first five years of the war and trying to assess what does it mean for Russia as a geopolitical actor? What does it mean for the Russian military? What implications or lessons can we draw in the West from Russia's intervention? So we agreed it was a good idea, and we all sort of agreed that we would go out and search for chapter authors, for experts some inside, but mostly outside of the organization, outside of FPRI. You can see if you download the book, the chapter authors really are experts in their field. Mm -hmm. We were able to get, you know, some actual Russians uh, to, to write some of the chapters. And then some people, uh, one of our chapter authors, Igor Delano, I think is, is actually a, a dual French-Russian citizen. He wrote the naval chapter. Anton Lavrov, who's a Russian, wrote the, the Air Force chapter. And uh, so we wanted to show sort of a joint Russian-Western perspective on the war and what it means for Russia and what it means for the West. And then we also got a number of U.S. experts, some of whom have Russian roots. So the, the intent of the book was really to put together a comprehensive, analytical, sort of neutral tone view of Russia's intervention in Syria. And uh, that's what we set out to do. I hope that's what we ended up doing. Yeah, I definitely wanted to comment the neutral tone of it. And I just want to, how do you approach this subject 
without, you know, you have your preconceived notions, you have your opinions. This is a really hard thing to study and not feel passionately about in one direction or another. How did you guys get that through to the final product? I think as in all scholarship, right, um, you have to just be guided by evidence, all right? And you have to put your personal preferences and opinions aside and, and go where the evidence takes you. And so in, you'll see in some of the chapters of the book, there, there are more critical of Russia than others. Um, mm-hmm. Even the ones, in fact, I think my, my final chapter is fairly critical, not necessarily critical, but we make the point that the Russians have committed war crimes in Syria. And right. we believe they've committed these intentionally. These aren't accidental war crimes, but it's part of a strategy. And the strategy, uh, Russia, like all states, it, it weighs costs and benefits of its actions. And in Syria, Given the objectives that the Russians were pursuing, things like intentionally failing to discriminate between legitimate UN-designated terrorist organizations like uh, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, which has changed names several times, now HTS, and ISIS, failing to discriminate between those groups and then moderate opposition or other opposition groups that were signatories to the UN Security Council resolution and therefore weren't legitimate targets. So the Russians intentionally failed to discriminate between those two, and in some cases actually attacked the, the, the moderate groups or the groups that were part of the UN peace process before they attacked al-Qaeda and ISIS. Mm-hmm. So that served Russia's interests. They did it because it served their, their political, geopolitical and military interests in Syria, intentionally targeting hospitals, schools, and other civilian infrastructure that, according to the laws of war and Geneva Conventions, those are war crimes. But the, the benefit to Russia in terms of reducing opposition urban strongholds, I think, was assessed as greater than the cost in terms of reputational damage for having committed war crimes. So when we say in, in parts of the book, hey, the Russians did these things, it's not necessarily to, you know, to bring that to the public attention because that's already sort of in the public domain. right? People who mm-hmm. are watching this war know that these things have happened. It's more by way of explaining why in the Russian calculus it made sense to do this. Now, from a Western perspective, that calculating and sort of making a rational decision to commit a war crime doesn't make sense, right? But I think the Russians take a much more instrumental view of all international agreements, uh, including some of the things that they signed up to in terms of the UN Security Council resolutions on Syria, Geneva Conventions, and all these other things. They, I believe, thought they had such an important geopolitical interest and such an important security interest at stake in Syria that it made sense to do the things they did. So even when we when we point out that they've done these things, we, we try to kind of step back from it, take an analytical and more neutral tone about it. That's sort of hard to do, right? Because these are emotional. I mean, if you if you watch the videos of things that happened in, in some of these Syrian cities, uh, they're horrible to watch. But for Western policymakers and analysts, I think it's more important to understand not that Russia did these things, but understand what drove these actions, why they did what they did. So moving back a little bit, I'd love for you to set the stage of just what Syria looked like prior to Russia's you know, first primary involvement in the country. So I think that's around the 2015 period. They're, they're a little earlier and, of course, lying about it. But there's my politics shining through. So the book does a terrific job in the intro, just kind of laying out in a few pages exactly what was going on and why Russia needed to get involved. So I'd love to hear your take on that. So in the summer of 2015, it looked like the Assad regime was very much on its last legs. And I think to decision makers in the Kremlin, it looked like if they didn't intervene and soon, what would happen was Assad would fall and ISIS and Al Qaeda would, would be in charge of a chaotic 
dismembered Syria. And Mike Kaufman makes this point in his chapter of the book, which is chapter three. And so you would then have, instead of a coherent Syrian state that had been for a long time, a partner of Russia in, in the Middle East and in the Levant and really one of its only reliable partners, although the relationship had become fairly transactional before the war. But nevertheless, it served Moscow's purpose to have Assad in power in Damascus in charge of a functioning Syrian state. And that looked like it was on its last legs in the summer of 2015. So I think in the, in the Kremlin's view, if they did nothing, Assad would fall. ISIS and the Al-Qaeda equivalent or Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria would be in charge of a dismembered country. And from Syria to, to Central Asia and the, and the Caucasus, North and South Caucasus, which Russia has long seen as its sort of soft underbelly, there are a lot of cultural and political connections and the geographical distance is not that far. And so I think from the Russian perspective, they were confronted with the fact of the potential fact of renewed instability in the Caucasus in Central Asia. So that was something that they weren't willing to countenance. And then, of course, the second thing is, in a larger geopolitical sense, Syria looked like a place to take a stand against what the Russians call the color revolutions or what they see as a series of U.S.-backed or U.S.-inspired regime changes in governments that are friendly to Russia. And so these include the Georgian Rose Revolution in 2003, the Kyrgyz Tulip Revolution in 2004, the two revolutions in Ukraine in, in 05, and then 2013-14, uh, the NATO operation in Libya that toppled Gaddafi, which was very shocking to Putin personally. And he's got, there's some quotes in the book about what Putin, uh, how he reacted to Gaddafi's ouster and, and execution by the opposition. But Syria was a, a way to draw a line against what the Russians saw as this incessant Western encroachment on and toppling of regimes that are friendly to them. Of course, we see the color revolutions and the Arab Spring and all these other political phenomena as the people in these countries overthrowing corrupt authoritarian regimes, right? That's the Western view. And I think that's largely the correct view of it. The Russians don't see it that way. I believe this is a, a sincerely and deeply held view inside the Kremlin that these color revolutions are really actually Western-backed conspiracies to overthrow Kremlin-friendly governments. And you're not, this is a conversation that we can have all day. And I don't think we're going to be successful at convincing the Kremlin that the color revolutions aren't exactly what they believe they are. So it was a second reason for the intervention in Syria was a way to take a stand against the color revolutions and, and overthrowing Russian-friendly governments. And then in the larger sort of global context, I think it was about undermining the U.S.-led world order, which the Russian government does not see as legitimate. They call it uh, hegemonic or unipolar all the time. And the idea is that the natural order of things should be a multipolar order in which Russia is one of the poles. And the U.S. hegemonic world order, which we call the, the U.S. the liberal world order, is really a scheme right, to deny Russia its, 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 its rightful place as a, one of the leaders of the world. So it was, it was a chance also to undermine the U.S.-led I feel like an under-discussed part of the conflict is what Assad was basically doing since the start of the Iraq war. How is Assad treating the domestic population, seeing a minority-ruled secular government on his border get toppled by U.S. forces? And he kind of saw the writing on the wall and started cracking down and kind of completely changing the makeup of Syria. How do you think that contributed to the Arab Spring being so violent and, and exploding so quickly um, when that didn't quite happen in some surrounding countries? Sure. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying I, I am far from a Middle East expert, much less a Syria expert, right? I don't right, consider right. myself either of those. I, I really do focus on Russia and Eurasia. 
But I think I think it's a reasonable conclusion to draw that Assad's very early and very violent crackdown on what were largely peaceful protests early on uh, is what escalated the war to a civil war. And so he may have drawn, I don't know, maybe he drew the, the inference from, from the Iraq war that if he allowed any sort of opposition to coalesce, that mm -hmm. the U.S. would then sort of jump on board with that opposition and use it to topple him. Of course, this is a counterfactual, we'll never know, but had he not reacted so violently, so quickly to what, again, at the time were, were, were largely peaceful protests. And, you know, of course, as we say in the book, and many people have said, it started with teenagers spray painting graffiti on a wall, right? right. And here we are now in the middle of the bloodiest war started in the 21st century, right? So, I mean, to get from, from that event to where we are now required a lot of mistakes, I think, on the part of the Assad regime. And one of those was the really violent early crackdown against the protests. You talk about in the book this 2015 MOU that the U.S. and Russia signed, basically an MOU of deconflict, saying we're not allies here, but we're not going to openly engage in conflict, but something bad might happen. What were those conversations like between Putin and Obama? Because that just seems so hard to conceptualize how the U.S. was sort of allowing this to happen, but still trying to, you know, back the free Syrian army and trying to fight ISIS in the area, but just really allowing Russia to carve out their own space. How did that dynamic play out? Yeah, so I was involved in the deconfliction effort later and at a much lower level, clearly, than the Putin-Obama <laughs> level or Putin-Trump level. But when the Russians, so I think the Russian intervention, there's plenty of evidence that the Russian intervention in September of 2015 caught a lot of the U.S. government a little off guard. We were not prepared for them to move as quickly as they did and in as it, with a force as, as large and potent as they did. But once they were there, once they the air campaign started and they were established in Mamie Mare Base and running resupply convoys into Tartus, they, it was it was a fait accompli, right? It was the, the facts on the ground were that Russia is now a player in Syria. So in the fall of 2015, there was an air deconfliction MOU signed between the U.S. and the Russian Federation that essentially acknowledged that both countries would have aircraft flying over Syria, and that we would set up a channels of deconfliction phone lines, email, and other things between our air operations center in LUD Qatar and the Russian headquarters in Humaymeem, Syria, that would just try to make sure that there weren't any inadvertent escalations due to miscalculation, misperception, or just a mistake, right? So that happened in 2015. In the summer of 2017, as U.S. and Russian forces started to approach each other on the ground, or U.S. and Russian-backed forces, and there were a couple of near misses in terms of escalation on the ground. The U.S. commander of the operation, that counter-ISIS operation that was going on at the time, still is, but at a much lower level. The commander of that operation in Iraq and Syria asked for a ground deconfliction cell to be set up. And so that was set up in the, in the, in the summer and fall of 2017. And that's the part of the deconfliction arrangement that I was involved in then in the summer and fall of 2017. And that both of those channels, both air and ground deconfliction channels, still exist today. Uh, they're still operative. Uh, it's a little quieter now. It, well, actually, it was quieter until October 2019 when we sort yeah. of unilaterally withdrew from parts of northern Syria along the Turkish border. And the Turkish army and the Russian army came in. And so now we've had several tactical level re-escalations with the Russians where they've rammed our vehicles or two patrols have run into each other. And so whoever's in that seat now, the ground, the ground deconfliction seat is, is fairly busy again. So I'm curious exactly what did Russian tactics look like in 2015? 
how do they sort of change the arithmetic of the war for Assad? Because it's pretty simple to say we're going to stabilize uh, Syria. And then you look at where ISIS was, where the Free Syrian Army was, where all Nusra was. This is not a simple, a simple dynamic in any in any way. Right. So first of all, both Mike Kaufman in chapter three and then Charles Bartles and, and Lester Grau in their chapter on uh, on ground forces in Syria, both of them make the point that the Russians, once they got on the ground, they sort of realized they'd intervened too late, that their initial plan was to intervene largely with air power and use the the, the, the Syrian Arab army as their, their ground force, support it with Russian air power and what we call enablers. So intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, engineers, artillery, air defense, things like that. They realized when they got on the ground there in September 2015 that the Syrian Arab army had essentially disintegrated. And so they had to rely initially on on local militias, regional and local militias, the Tiger forces and others. They had to rely on Lebanese Hezbollah. They had to rely on some of the Iranian militias and the Iranian government forces while they patiently rebuilt the Syrian army. And I think this is where, this is an area where you really have to give the Russian armed forces, the Russian military some credit. I think many Western militaries would have been attempted to solve the problem themselves by deploying ground forces to just fight the ground fight, right? And the Russians were very clear that they did not want to own this conflict. They did not want to be over leveraged. In other words, they didn't want to be, they didn't want to lose their leverage against Assad by being more committed than he was to the rest, you know, to, to, to winning the war on the ground. And so they they very patiently rebuilt the Syrian army while they used these militias, but they they resisted the temptation to deploy large numbers of Russian ground forces to solve the problem for Assad, right, on his behalf. So anyway. And what they pursued was a, a geographically phased approach where they took the fight, you know, very in, in small bites. The air campaign actually initially targeted more of the moderate, what we call the moderate opposition groups. The Russians scoff at the at the, at the adjective moderate. Moderate jihadists. Moderate jihadists is what they'll say. And they're all terrorists. But these are, you know, the Western backed and Turkish backed groups. And uh, they were really the, the primary targets of Russia's air campaign after Russia intervened in September of 2015. Because I think, first of all, geographically, they were closer to Damascus and they were closer. They were in Latakia province and Idlib and they were closer to, to the Russian base at Maymim. And so they posed a greater threat both to Assad, to his rule. Palmyra had fallen by that time to ISIS. That put ISIS uh, sort of close to uh close to Damascus, but the Western back groups were much closer. And so they were the they were the initial targets, which actually helped ISIS and the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria by by eliminating or by by decimating uh, some of their primary competitors, that at least right. primary competitors that weren't the Assad regime. What really shifted that was actually, I'd say two things. First of all, the downing of the Russian fighter by the Turkish F-16 in November of 2015, was a significant escalation between Russia and Turkey that they then that they then handled. And actually by the coup attempt or after the coup attempt the next summer, the relations between Russia and Turkey were better than they had been before the downing uh, of the F-16. But the, the, it was the downing of the Metrojet, the bombing of ISIS bombing of the, the Russian airliner, the Metrojet flight that really woke Russia up and caused it to switch gears and stop targeting the moderate or Western back groups and really start targeting ISIS. About at the same time when the U.S. was targeting ISIS oil infrastructure, tankers and, and, and oil refineries and, and other oil and gas facilities. And so that combined U.S.-Russian campaign against against ISIS is really what brought it economically to its knees and made the caliphate no longer viable as a caliphate. From then, it was the military defeat was really only a matter of time. 
Carnegie Moscow has this great chart of just sortie rates from Russia. And it's basically right when that jetliner went down, it went from like 40 to 100 for a month. It really became kind of all out war. How is Russia so effective, though, just in on the tactical level? I think they had 5,000 men there at any one time, maybe 40 plus aircraft. And these, you know, some of these were older Tupolovs. These weren't like, you know, the most modern stuff on the line. And using dumb bombs, that's relative. I think they had a way to target them a little better. But at least from an American point of view, this was kind of like sending out stuff from the 90s out to seeing what happens, yet they completely turned to war. Are they just more resourceful than the U.S. with lesser with lesser resources? I do think, yeah, there's some accuracy to that. I think they got a lot out of what they said. Uh, and they, they got a lot out of what they said because they were willing to run a little higher risk probably than we were in terms of sortie rates. So for, for large parts of the campaign, the Russians had two crews per aircraft, which meant because, you know, the, the crew is limited in, in, in how, how long it right, can right. fly. Aircraft is theoretically unlimited, right? If you can keep it fueled and keep it maintained, it can fly 24 hours a day. And so this is something that only an extremist would, would a Western Air Force consider doing. And that is flying the aircraft twice as much, having the sortie rate be twice as much as as a normal sortie rate would be. But the Russians did that and they maintained it and they maintained it with a fairly low level of, of mishaps, accidents, things like that, especially compared to previous Russian campaigns. So it may have been a, a little higher level of, of lost aircraft to accidents and, and maintenance mishaps than in a Western Air Force, but it was much lower than previous Russian campaigns. Uh, they had a large contractor footprint presence on the ground to, to maintain uh, the equipment. They did cycle a lot of their newer equipment in into Syria, some of the newer aircraft. Mm-hmm. They, you, you mentioned the, the dumb bomb problem. They, they got around in a lot of different ways that most of the what I've read and what I've heard in terms of their precision guided munitions percentage is about 20%. So only about 20% of what they dropped were PGMs that they could put through a window or on, a, on an individual vehicle or, or, or anything like that. So the other 80% were dumb bombs, um, but they deployed the, a new site, a new bomb site called the Confess site that they had some issues with early on making it work. But once they they made it work, they were essentially able to use unguided gravity bombs and drop them with almost precision guided munition accuracy. And Anton Lavrov's, I refer you to that chapter, he's got a great discussion, as does Mike Kaufman, uh, of how they use these tools. Uh, They use essentially, uh, as you said, 1980s, really, technology in a lot of ways, 80s or 90s technology to have 21st century effects on the ground. So we talked a little bit about actually Russia's targeting and uh, getting the conversation. How much of Russia's actions were specifically to facilitate taking of specific objectives or actually forwarding, you know, something towards a military victory or compared to bombing hospitals, bombing credit marketplaces, bombing UN aid, just kind of spreading terror on the ground? Was it more uh, strategic or was it more that fear campaign? And if you want to reject that premise, please go ahead. No, I think the I think the the fear campaign or the bombing of schools, hospitals, and other civilian targets was was part of the military campaign, right? right. So the the pattern essentially was an opposition held cities in urban areas, uh, and the one I was I'm most familiar with was Eastern Aleppo because I happened to be doing a, an assignment in Geneva in the summer of 2016 uh, when this was happening, and the, the assignment was the Russia policy advisor to the U.S mission to the International Syria Support Group at the UN in Geneva, right? Which is a whole really long title uh, and the job is much less impressive than the title would imply. (laughs) Nevertheless, 
um, what what we were doing at the time was this was after UNSCR 2254 had been signed. There was technically a cessation of hostilities in place. The U.S. and Russia were co-chairs of the Syria Support Group, which met in Geneva, still does. And the idea was that we would be jointly implementing the ceasefire, overseeing the ceasefire and making sure it held. So in the context of the ceasefire, the Russians and the Assad regime were mounting a very deliberate military operation against eastern Aleppo, which was held by a coalition of opposition groups, most of which were signatories of the cessation of hostilities and so were no longer legitimate targets. Nevertheless, the pattern they used there and repeated in other urban areas was first cut off all humanitarian assistance into into the city, right? Cut the routes in. It was Costello Road into Aleppo that they cut very early. Then they would uh, they would deny UN humanitarian assistance by saying it was too insecure. There was not not enough security, right? The, the the humanitarian assistance convoys would be at risk, and so they they left the opposition along with the, the civilian population in these opposition held cities without the humanitarian assistance that they needed and that they were entitled to under under the UN Security Council resolution. The next phase would be an indiscriminate, or maybe it wasn't indiscriminate. Actually, maybe it was deliberate bombing campaign where they would target the the UN-backed, or they would target the the groups that were signatories to this cessation of hostilities. They would target the civilian population. And it was a terror campaign to induce the opposition in the city to leave the city. And about that time, the Russians and the regime would offer a humanitarian corridor out of the city, and they would allow fighters to leave. uh, And they would say, you can leave the city along one of these, they would set up these exit points, and you can leave the city along one of these exit points, and we'll will allow you free passage. And where they essentially, most of these groups ended up in Idlib province. The Russians allowed them to go to Idlib, which is a problem they're having to deal with now and they don't really have a good answer for. But so I would say that the indiscriminate bombing of of cities and maybe even, like I said, maybe it was not indiscriminate. Maybe the focus was on civilian infrastructure in order to induce terror or to to cause terror, to induce the opposition to leave the city. So the Russians and the and the Assad regime did not have to do the hard, really bloody work of urban fighting, right? They've been able to avoid for most of the campaign. They've not done much urban fighting. And, and so that's kept casualties low on their side. Frankly, it's kept casualties low on the on the insurgent side as well after the, after the bombing is over. It hasn't preserved the city, right? But it, I think it was part of a deliberate military strategy that to use things like, you know, bombing of civilian targets to induce the opposition to leave places the Russians and the Assad regime wanted them to leave. I think you have a line is that Idlib is probably the most dangerous place in the world. Idlib government, Idlib city, I don't know which one are focusing on. What's going on in Idlib at this time is one of the more focal points of the war. Yeah, sure. You're right. I did write a piece earlier this year for FPRI. The title was Idlib, the most dangerous place on earth. I think Nagorno-Karabakh is now vying for that honor. Azerbaijan will do its best to get that title. Yeah. The problem with Idlib is that it's sort of become this petri dish of opposition groups, you know, sort of, quote unquote, moderate opposition groups, you know, the remnants of Western back groups, Turkish back groups like the Free Syrian Army, or I think they've probably changed their name now too. all these groups have. But the, the former Free Syrian Army, HTS, which is the former Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, ISIS, and all these other groups, the Assad regime, I think, wants Idlib taken and they want to take Idlib back. And of course, they tried starting in December of 2019 through March of 2020. They ended up killing a few dozen Turkish soldiers. Of course, as part of a de-escalation agreement, 
signed, oh gosh, I think as far back as 2018, the original Idlib de-escalation agreement allowed Russia, Turkey, and Iran to set up these observation posts around the borders of Idlib governorate. And uh, so it was one of these observation posts, Turkish observation posts that the Assad regime hit, killed somewhere around 33 Turkish soldiers. And then there was a sustained Russian and Syrian bombing campaign of Idlib until the Turkish intervention. And the Turkish intervention really crippled the Syrian army. And, and it only lasted a week or so, maybe a couple of weeks. My memory's fading on this. I remember it was early March when Erdogan went to Moscow and he and Putin signed a new new ceasefire, a new de-escalation agreement. But that Turkish intervention was, I think it shocked the Russians a little bit uh, in, in how how powerful and powerfully the Turks came in. Turks were very careful not to target Russian aircraft, uh, and it, but they were... They did a lot of damage to the rebuilt Syrian army, right? This is the Syrian army that the Russians had spent five years almost rebuilding, and the Turks crippled it in, in a week or so. One of the ways they did it is this TB2 drone, this TB2 armed drone, which is doing so much damage right now to Armenian forces in the Gona Karabakh. So the Syrian army had no answer for the TB2 drone. I think the Russians probably could have affected the, the drone, drone strikes had they chosen to, but they, for whatever reason, didn't. At least in Nagorno Karabakh, it's remarkable how quick that footage has gone up on Twitter and wherever. It's almost a yep. strike happens, and 12 hours later, it's online. What do, you, what do you think changed for Erdogan's math to uh, get involved in Idlib after kind of saying sideline for so long? A great question. There's definitely just a geographic question. It's pretty damn close. Turkey already hosts, I think, 3 million Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. right? The idea of another million plus. And they had already, by the way, started, they had started to flee the strikes, uh, the Russian and regime strikes and move toward the Turkish border, right? So there was a specter of another million, million plus refugees spilling across the Turkish border with certainly jihadists, terrorists and others mixed in with them, right? So there was, there was that. There was, I think, the idea that Idlib also represents the last stronghold of the Turkish-backed the, the major mm-hmm. Turkish-backed groups in, in Syria and maybe for Erdogan. And again, I'll preface this by saying I'm not a Turkey expert either. But I think for Erdogan and, and the Turkish government, holding Idlib gives them, or at least having Idlib not be under regime control, gives them leverage that they would lose if it falls to the regime. Because right now it's a, it's a problem. It's a serious yeah. problem the Assad regime in Russia and Turkey in some ways holds the key to that problem. And so if if it falls to a military operation, they, they lose those keys. You also spoke about how Russia and the U.S. got, or you mentioned the civic anecdote where 200 Wagner mercenaries were killed in a Russian campaign in Kurdish-backed areas. How did it change from MOU, we'll stay out of each other's way, to Russia and the, and the Syrian area army pushing back on these Kurdish areas? My sense is that this is the February 2018 incident, right. uh, the, the, the Wagner group and some Syrian uh, forces who were in this really small geographic cutout on the east bank of the Euphrates, just south of Deir Ezzor. And they had actually come across the Euphrates while I was still doing the Russian deconfliction cell job. So we saw that they were across the Euphrates. And the next time we met with them, to with the Russians to update the deconfliction agreements, we allowed, we sort of agreed to allow them to stay there because we were across on quote, you know, quote unquote, their side of the river in the Northern Euphrates River in a place called Topka and then along the Iraq, Jordan, Syria border in a place called Altanf. And they had long wanted us out of those places. And so I think one of the reasons they came across the river uh, was to, to 
to establish a foothold on the East Bank that would either give them equivalency with the fact that we were on the West Bank or they could trade away to get us out of Altan for Topka. Mm-hmm. So we refused to trade away Topka and Altan for, for this little foothold. We agreed that they could stay where they were, but they couldn't come out of this little box that, that we, you know, we and they drew jointly on the map and agreed that they would stay there. This all happened in September and October of 2017. And then in February 2018, I was already gone. My successor was in the seat uh, at the deconfliction cell when this happened. But they, forces started to move out of that box and move toward uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, which is our partner force in Syria. And the specific Syrian Democratic Forces uh, element that they were attacking had U.S. advisors on the ground embedded with them, special forces advisors. And so... Our deconfliction cell called the Russian deconfliction cell in Hamamim and explained what was happening and explained that we would defend our forces if they didn't call this this attack off. And the Russian deconfliction cell disavowed any knowledge of the attack and said, look, these not not us. Uh, these aren't our forces. And so the U.S. counterattacked and, and decimated the, the, the attacking forces, killed, you know, we'll never know exactly how many. But the most reliable figure I can get is somewhere around 200, maybe a little more. Uh, many of whom were Russian citizens fighting for the Wagner Group, which is one of these Russian private military companies in 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 Syria. It just every question I could ask could introduce a new player, a new country, a new ideology involved. Uh, with that being the case, I mean, Russia got into this to for many reasons, but it's to make sure stabilized, to make sure there wasn't you know a absolute you know abyss of power. How does Russia get out of this? Is this just going to be Russia's role? That's that's not been what they've done in the Putin era. I think this is kind of against character. I think they want to get out. Do you think that's possible in any short time frame? Uh, no. Uh, Putin has announced at least, I think, three withdrawals from Syria. And what these withdrawals are is they're public relations stunts and they're really just scheduled rotations. And often the contingent will will go down in size before it goes back up. But it's smaller now than it was at the height of, of, the, of Russia's presence. So we talk about this a lot in the book. Like, what does it mean for Russia to win in Syria? For a Western government, that tends to mean, you know, if you do an operation like the Russians did, whether you go in to, to support a regime that's under attack or a government that's under attack from an insurgency, or you go in on behalf of an insurgency to topple a regime that we see as illegitimate, for instance, like we did in Afghanistan, with the Northern Alliance, the top of the Taliban regime. The Western model is you stay until the, the, the new government can stand on its own feet, can unify the country and, and run the country in, in some form that's recognizable to Western eyes as a legitimate government, right? And you stay until the economic damage of the war has been undone, right? And the country is economically back on its feet. I don't think either of those two things factor into the Russian calculus for victory in Syria. Russian calculus for victory in Syria was stop Assad from falling, stop the regime from collapsing, which they've done, and and restore sovereignty to as much of Syria as is feasible. Assad periodically pledges to restore his control over every inch of, of, of Syria. I really don't think the Russians need that to be for their campaign to be considered successful. I think where they are, if they could figure Idlib out, because Idlib really is a mess and really is still fairly close to their air base at Mamim, if they could figure that problem out, I think they would be mostly happy with what they have, which is Assad rules the, the central and western portion of the country. The U.S. is still down at Altanf, which is they, they would prefer us not to be there, but we're really not doing much damage to, to, to their interests down there. 
So Syria is, the Assad regime is in control of two thirds of Syria, the coalition of the Syrian Democratic Forces. So the Kurdish and Arab coalition still controls much of uh, the eastern part of the country. Russia, its air base at Hamimim is secure. Its naval base at Tartus is secure. Its geopolitical interests are secure. It's now a player in the eastern Mediterranean and the Levant in a way that it wasn't before the war. I don't think they have the capacity or the appetite to engage in large-scale economic reconstruction or rebuilding. That's that's something I think they would prefer to leave to the international community. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a map of Syria, it's, if he controls Damascus, Homs, Aleppo, and West, it's it's kind of it's kind of fine. The rest is not. Euphrates Valley is complicated, of course, but right. there is a solution where he, it's not, you know, Syria 2001, but it is a stable nation at the very least. Sure. And it's a it's a springboard for Russia's geopolitical interests in the Levant and Eastern Mediterranean. And, you know, I think the Russians look at their partnership with Assad like they do a lot of things in very dispassionate instrumental. Mm-hmm. T- Assad is a convenient instrument of Russian geopolitical policy as long as he remains that you know, they'll let him, they'll be happy with him controlling as much of the country as he needs to control to keep their interests secure. Of course, we'll probably be talking about this in 10 years. I think the <laughs> dynamics will not change very much. Something I hope we're not talking about in 10 years is Nagorno-Karabakh. Obviously, this is old, I think, at this point. I'd love to hear your take on what has happened so far and how you think Turkey, Russia, and, you know, the entire Western world is going to contribute to this. I, I think Nagorno-Karabakh, and I've thought this for a long time, is is it's by far the most dangerous of, you know, the quote-unquote frozen conflicts, the conflicts that erupted in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So mm-hmm. Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia, Transnistria in Moldova, now the Donbass in Ukraine, and, and of course, Nagorno-Karabakh are the, the major ones. There were some smaller uh, civil wars elsewhere in the former Soviet Union, but those are the, the big ones. Other than Nagorno-Karabakh, in eastern Ukraine, the military solution to those conflicts uh, has already been affected. And in Moldova, the you know the Russian 14th Army is part of a peacekeeping force. There's no military solution for the Moldovans to retake Transnistria. The you know four or five thousand Russian troops each in Abkhazia and South Ossetia means there's no military solution for Georgia to retake those two provinces. The Donbas seems like it's in sort of a military stalemate. And then there's Nagorno-Karabakh, which the, the, what makes it so dangerous, I think, is that there's no international peacekeeping force on the ground separating the two. Armenia won the initial war, you know, 89 to 94, with a little bit of Russian help, but largely on, on its own, Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh together ejected the Azeri government forces from Nagorno-Karabakh, which under the Soviet Union had been an autonomous or an ethnic Armenian enclave inside of uh, Soviet Azerbaijan. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was inside independent Azerbaijan. So Armenia won the war militarily in the early 90s. Azerbaijan has never accepted that as the status quo, as no no sovereign country can can accept that. That's why Georgia has never and never will, I think, accept the, the, the quote unquote independence of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Moldova won't accept Transnistria breaking away. Russia would not accept Chechnya breaking away. Uh, so Azerbaijan does not accept the status quo and has, because of its oil and gas wealth, had a defense budget for most of the last 20 years that's larger than the entire Armenian state budget. So I think on the Azerbaijani side, for a long time, there's been this idea that time's on our side. There is a military solution in in view or within within grasp, uh, and we just have to be patient. And when the time is right, uh, we can affect this military solution either incrementally, which is, I think, you know, with some of the previous escalations, including the one in the summer of this year, seem to be just incrementally improving their military position 
in preparation for you know the larger offensive mm-hmm. uh, that would, would would win the war for them comprehensively. Whether this is that larger offensive, I don't know. The early indications are that it weren't right; that it was really about taking back a couple of, of districts that that actually were outside of the old Nagorno-Karabakh region in sort of uncontested Azerbaijan, but which Armenia has militarily occupied since the war and which are not, which the terrain is a little more conducive. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not high mountains like a lot of Nagorno-Karabakh is. So that appeared to be the initial goal, but these things tend to escalate, especially when external powers are involved, like Turkey is certainly involved on the part of Azerbaijan. We don't know. I mean, Armenia claimed that a Turkish F-16 shot down an Armenian SU-25. I haven't seen any independent verification of that, and the Turkish government has denied it. Whether or not that's true, the the amount of, of military support of Turkey, especially in terms of arms sales and things like that, these TB2 drones, which have been devastatingly effective against Armenian forces in the war, so Turkey is certainly involved on the side of Azerbaijan. There are reports that Iran is facilitating uh, movement of supplies and fighters to the Armenian side. There are even reports that the Pakistanis have sent militants to fight on the Azerbaijani side. Those are unconfirmed, I think, as well. But this escalation looks different in that there are there's a much larger number of external players involved. And I think that makes it very, very dangerous. This is an area where I think Russia and the U.S. both have a a really strong national security interest in de-escalating this thing. And I guess the Russia-U.S.-France presidential letter of days ago is a step in that direction, but there needs to be a whole lot more on-the-ground engagement, sort of similar to the way it was Sarkozy when he was EU. France had the rotating EU presidency in 2008, right, during the Russia-Georgia war. He flew out. To Georgia, he he flew to Moscow and he he conducted this this shuttle diplomacy on behalf of the European Union to to stop that conflict, and that was a five day war. This one's been going on now for more than five days, and you don't see any sort of that type of international diplomacy here. Uh, but I think there needs to be because I don't see how it deescalates without that. I think something similar happened in Sarajevo in 95. It was either the French president or some Western politician just flew out in the middle of the war zone and basically like used their diplomatic shroud to calm things down, get aid in, get some stability. I don't know if that's going to happen. In- yeah, no. And yeah, 95 in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina is a great example of the type of comprehensive diplomatic effort that's required. So yes, you had Western, including American, high-level policymakers flying in to Sarajevo, trying to de-escalate the conflict. But then you had the whole Dayton process, right, where Clinton administration essentially locked <laughs> locked the warring sides into Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, to press out and said, "You can, we can leave. We'll all leave here when there's a peace accord." And I mean, that was a that was a and to this day still successful, right? So we're talking, you know, Bosnia Herzegovina is not the most stable country in Europe, but it's also not nearly what it was in 1992 to 1995 during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It's a functioning state, but it took that type of Western diplomatic effort to stop that war. Well, hopefully we can have you back and discuss that a little more. But for now, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the Syria book. It is free to download. Anyone can access this. It's a great resource. And yeah, excited for what comes next. But thank you so much. Yeah, thanks very much, Thomas. And and thanks for the invitation to to you and Michelle. I've really enjoyed it. Let me say that my comments and opinions are my own and don't reflect the policy or position of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or the Department of Defense. And yeah, hopefully when the uh, the Gorno-Karabakh war is is over and and peace has been restored, I'd love to talk about how it ended. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. For more Slavic content, you can visit our website. You can also follow us on Twitter. And you can also follow Robert Hamilton on Twitter. He's a great resource for everything going on in Eurasia. And it's a great way to stay on top of Nagorno-Karabakh. So please like, rate, review, whatever you can do to support the show. We love making it. And we hope you love listening to it. So long. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University 